Welcome back to Outdoors with me, Lawrence Gunther. Have you heard of Grace the Turtle? No, she's not an Enviro Halloween costume suggestion. She's a snapping turtle, and Lily's going to tell us all about it. We're going to learn about a new program offered by an NGO called Door Number One. This is something any of you involved with uh, schools can get involved with. Getting your school onto an environmental track. My tip... Well, it's a nasty one. What should you do to avoid getting a fishing hook stuck in your finger or somewhere else in your body? And uh, how to avoid that in the first place? And my reflection is about the need for all of us to be doing something to minimize climate change. Getting Schooled with Miss Lily. Hey, Lily, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. Did you find out who is Grace the turtle? Grace. Grace turns out to be a snapping turtle in Halliburton County, Ontario. Oh, Halliburton. Yeah, she began walking the earth around 1897. The year the former Prime Minister of Canada, Lester B. Pearson, was born. Grace has outlast bubonic plague, speeding cars, and ever-shrinking wetlands. She's older than any living human being, which makes sense because she's a snapping turtle. Um, yeah, the species can live over 275 years. Based on the size of her shell, Grace is at least 125 years old. Yeah. She is the largest and oldest female turtle known in Ontario. It's amazing just how old, you know, animals in our cold, cold climate can get, right? I mean, they grow so slowly because of all the cold winters, but then they last forever. Like lake trout... You know, in our northern lakes, they can get up to 150 years old. Can they actually? Yeah. Oh. So, Lily, where does Grace live? Uh, she lives in Halliburton County, Ontario. Yeah. Uh, in a wetland next yeah. to three lakes, a hospital, and a high school, and an elementary school. Oh my goodness, she probably saw all those things getting built. Yeah. <laughs> my gosh. Leora Berman is the person who introduced Grace to the world. She met Grace in spring 2018 when the turtle was sighted in front of a school bus. At 38 centimeters, Grace was the biggest turtle Berman had seen in nearly a decade of work in turtle conservation. It took two biologists to lift her and get her away from the bus. I know Leora. You know, I've had her on Bluefish Radio Show before, and uh, we've been keeping in touch ever since. It's been like five years I've known her. She's an amazing go-getter. She really uh, has so many things going on. And you know what, Lily? You've also been to Halliburton County. When? They had a film festival there, and they invited us to come and, and uh, show what lies below the film. And we stayed overnight at a beautiful resort. It was a wonderful two days in Halliburton County. I, I love would, that area. I would just like to make everyone aware that I was at my friend's sleepover. I did not attend this. You were not. No, I wasn't there. Theo did. Theo oh, went. Oh, that's, that's right. It was just Theo. I did not <laughs> attend this festival, but thanks for reminding me. So, Lily, why did uh, Leora call her Grace? Leora Berman called her Grace because, according to her, she's got one eye, and it is by Grace that she is still alive. My God. I got no good eyes. I could be dead tomorrow if I was a turtle. Oh, my goodness. The blind jokes. How politically incorrect of you. Well, I know, but it's funny she makes that blind reference, right? But I guess as a turtle, living in the wild, you know, you need all your senses if you're going to, you got a fighting chance. Yeah. So, Lily... Eyesight aside, mm. what do turtles like Grace mean to the ecosystem? Uh, there are many, many things Grace and turtles like her do for their environments. 
As they move around their territories, turtles transfer seeds between upland and lowland, wetland and dryland, creating new habitats for 70% of Ontario's fish and wildlife. Turtles also clean the bottom of lakes by eating pathogens, waste, debris, dead animals, and more. Their deep, steady movement creates reservoirs in wetlands, suffering drought conditions, which is essential to protecting tadpoles, small fish, and other animals. There are very few animals that can do what a turtle can. Turtles are also loyal to their hibernation sites. After making a mental map of their territories when they are very young, they walk the same path from their nest to their hibernation spot for their whole life and never deviate. Because of rapid human population growth and development, there are few safe spaces left for turtles in Ontario. Grace's life and the survival of all eight turtle species in Ontario, from the endangered Blanding turtles, also known as Ontario's Smiling Turtle, hmm. to the green and bright yellow painted turtle, is under constant threat. Snapping turtles are one of eight turtle species at risk in southern Ontario. It's shocking just how... Many of our turtle species in Ontario are uh, at risk of being extinct. The only turtle that's not is the invasive red turtle, which apparently is quite problematic, but that's, that's a whole different story. Turtle species are declining at record rates. While it is difficult to know the exact population size across the province, estimate based on the rapidly declining sizes of wetlands and the number of injured and dead turtles reported suggests the species has decreased by more than 50% in the last 20 years. Wow. Yeah. This estimate is likely on the lower end because we have lost more than 75% of wetlands in southern Ontario. That corresponds to the main ranges for Ontario turtles. Hmm. The problem is that they're not living long enough to lay eggs and sustain their population. What? Yeah, well, turtles take 50 to 60 years to reach sexual maturity. 50 to 60 years is a long time. It's a long time. That's a long time. So it takes... you got a long ways to go if you were a turtle. If you were a turtle. This is disgusting. (laughs) So they take 50 to 60 years to reach sexual maturity, find a partner to breed with, and lay at least one egg egg that will grow to adulthood which seems like a long time to humans but isn't for a species that can live over 400 years i don't know if you were alive then but your mother and uh, your sister mimi i was there were you there i was there. at strathcona park saw it man oh, you're oh just... okay so that was that was a that was a big snapper right eh? it was stuck under a fence yeah it, it had laid its eggs in the uh, in the ground uh, next to the river but it couldn't find its way back through the fence to get back to the river. And I guess it was about the middle of the day when you guys discovered it. You guys heard it with some sticks back around the fence or what I did you do? I don't know. I was like six. I yeah. don't remember. Well, I but it was out. It got out. Yeah, yeah. I remember your mom saying they got some sticks and they sort of herded it along the fence because there was no way to get to the water where it was. It had to be moved quite a ways along the path and then under the fence and then it had a clear shot to the river. Mm. That was quite, it was quite an operation, but they got it back. I've never seen a turtle there ever again, though. No, but uh, you wouldn't see them because they only come out at night. The only reason you saw that one is because it couldn't get back to the river before daylight. A veterinarian named Sue Carstairs, executive and medical director of Ontario Turtle Conservation Centre in Peterborough, wow. said turtles can't go more than two kilometers in the bioregion without running into a road. In the what region? Bioregion. Oh, okay. On average, she sees about 1,500 turtles admitted to her hospital every year, 90% of which are hit by vehicles on the road. That's a fraction of what gets killed. 
The hospital tries to heal and release as many as possible. Any females that do not survive have their eggs collected and incubated. The silver lining is that there is an increasing number of turtle guardian groups emerging from Ontario. They're partnering with scientists to educate communities about turtle conservation campaigns. It's always the same. You know, we keep spreading out, moving into nature, and then, you know, getting surprised when nature doesn't work out so well with our being there. You know, like bringing cars into into nature, more and more car traffic. It's, it's not good for animals. You see so many animals mm-hmm. hit on the road. Lily, what's being done to save Grace? Uh, Turtle Guardians started a petition to Ontario's Ministry of the Environment, Conservation and Parks. The Turtle Guardian petition reads, Help us save Grace and her other shelled friends in Halberton County. All turtles in Halberton County are at risk due to insufficient wetland protection. Help us ensure their township employs controls to protect our heritage from now and forever. So Google Grace the Turtle petition and Tur- you can sign on that. Or Turtle Guardians. Turtle Guardians is yeah. the other one. Cool. I always thought it was really cool the way these turtles come out of the river and their their wetlands at night and they smell that dark, rich, soft soil and they, they, they find it just by smell. And they, they dig a little hole, lay their eggs, cover them and then go back into the river without anyone ever seeing them do what they did because they don't want the other animals to find their uh, their little nest of eggs that are just left alone from that point on until those little turtles hatch pop out of the dirt and smell the river and find their way back to the water or the wetland i used to watch a lot of environmental tv shows when i was little and i specifically remember this one thing and i forget which continent or country it is that turtles would lay their eggs in either crocodile and alligator nests because the turtle knew that the alligator would protect the eggs. There's the solution. We need some uh, crocodiles up here in in Ontario. Let's not. (laughs) Thanks, Lily. Let's not. Yeah, I I just want to thank the Narwhal, which researched and published the article where I got most of the information from, not the crocodile thing. That was from Wild Kratz. So thank you to Chris and Martin Kratz. Oh, yeah. Can we interview them? That'd be cool. Oh, hi. Please. Oh, okay. Put it on our list. I'm going to do it. I'll do it. <laughs> Thanks, Lily. Time for the bucket list. Michelle Andrews is the co-founder of Door Number One. She founded this with Philip Ling. He's the owner and visionary behind the Maitland Tower Project. So I wanted to hear more about door number one and what Michelle has in mind and where she's going with this. Thanks for joining us. I understand you're talking to us from your home there in in eastern Ontario. Yes, I am. We've got uh, a lovely patch of uh, land. You might hear my roosters in the background. Maybe the baby goats. We'll see. But <laughs> I'm happy to be talking to you, Lawrence. Michelle, talk to us a little bit about starting up uh, door number one, um, and then talk to us about you know the mission and the where you are with all this. Sure. So door number one was what I like to call my COVID baby. Uh, We had been working on the Maitland Tower project, trying to figure out how to amplify the work um, and really engage the community. And the mission is to provide practical inspiration 
for this transition we need to make to a just, beautiful and regenerated world. And we really felt like there's lots of ideals out there and there's lots of worries and doom and gloom about where the future is going. And we wanted to really provide people practical ways that are really actually exciting and inspiring. The big exciting project that we're doing is focusing on helping schools take climate action. So we have a pilot project that began last January with, and we have 13 schools across Canada and they are collaborating to take whole school high impact climate action. And it's called the Climate Action Accelerator Program. You know, it's so great. You're engaging young people. You got to give them hope and, uh, and a, an opportunity to make a difference. There's so much doom and gloom in the news in terms of climate and, and storms. And we see all these flood and fire events and heat warnings, uh, giving these young people a chance to make a difference. That's, that's fantastic. What's fun about this project, I think, is that we are certainly um, working with the young people. We have between 40 and 50 students involved in this project in those 13 schools, um, but they are working right alongside senior administration, facilities members, faculty members. So they, we have created a sort of a multi-generational cross-functional team at each school. These students, we can't put it all on the kids. It, of yeah. course, they need to learn. Of course, they, we want their voice. We want their action, but they can't do it without us. No. And we shouldn't be saying, oh, the next generation will save us. That's a, a really big pet peeve of mine. The next generation will not have the time to address the issues we've created for them. We, right now, need to be addressing these issues and engaging them and giving them the tools to go forward into this new world that we're trying to co-create with them. And make space for these young voices and young minds to to stretch and grow and and, uh, and and have a fact, right? Because it's so easy to keep kids into the learning mode and think, well, you're still learning, you have nothing to offer, you're too young yet. But young minds, they come up with some fantastic ideas. Oh, absolutely. I think this multi-generational thing is really um, a key to success that we, you know, we, we're all learning together. We're not teaching them stuff. We're learning it at the same time. The research does show actually that one of the, the best antidotes for the climate anxiety that our youth experience is that they see the adults uh, taking this on in the way that we should be. Now, how do you bring local knowledge, traditional, like First Nations knowledge and, and science into all of this? What we are doing is inviting them to be connecting in their own place uh, mm. with the Indigenous wisdom that is around them. Um, we know that, uh, you know, it's something we start every uh, workshop with, actually, is a, uh, a land acknowledgement and a little conversation about what the, the breadth of Indigenous knowledges around the country and around Turtle Island um, can bring to us, um, but really being... Uh, focused on their place is what we encourage them. So if you're on Vancouver Island, you connect with the Indigenous wisdom there and how you will address climate action will be different than how you might address it in the, the middle of the country or on the East Coast. That's, that's a great idea because then you're really going to have a whole bunch of different solutions being developed at different parts and different climates, different regions. And, and that's, those will make for some great lessons and, and best practices for sure. You know, instead of just everyone try this and tell us how it works. Will there be a celebration at the end of the three years? I mean, I would love to have a gathering. The, the question might be the carbon footprint of bringing everybody from across the continent. Into one place. Yeah. But we're trying to celebrate as we go. Yeah. Every workshop, we actually invite a brief sharing of something that's inspired you, something hopeful that you've done, something hopeful that you've seen. And so celebration, we actually think is a really big part of taking the action. I understand you're still recruiting uh, individuals for this initiative. Is that true? Or is that yeah. correct? 
Well, we are starting a second cohort of schools. And so far we have three enrolled and a bunch more in conversation and maybe another dozen or more um, to join us. And we'll just keep going as long as people want to do this work with us. Um, and I will say too that the resources we're building are free and open on the website right now on the doornumber1.org website. Uh, we want to be sharing the learning broadly. This is not a time for password protected member only sites or whatever. So if you're interested in checking out more about what we're doing, you can you can find it all there. Now, I understand like the bigger picture outcomes that you're shooting for, you know, more resilience and, and, and just a better way of doing things, not just doing it in a less worse way. And I get that. What are your other big sort of hopes for down the road in terms of uh, door number one and the Maitland Tower? You know, where do you see this? Uh, do you have some sort of milestones you hope to reach? Uh, talk to us about some of the goalposts. Well, a couple of things, I guess I would say. We, we want to be making a difference on the in terms of our community outreach in Eastern Ontario. We want to be uh, seeing that, you know, that people along the river, for example, our neighbors up and down Brockville, Prescott, uh, along there are rewilding their shorelines and regenerating their spaces the way we are. And we're going to, we're hoping that Watersheds Canada is one of our partners. We're hoping that Watersheds Canada, which is a fantastic uh, charity. They um, really are. Yeah. We hope that they get swamped with requests as a result of the watershed <laughs> work that they're doing on our site. Um, so, you know, we, we just, we want to see this grow. Um, and in terms of the schools project, the theme for this year is actually building a movement too powerful to ignore and mm. what we really we want in each school community we want that school to become uh, a site of innovation in climate action that will inspire the neighbors around that school the other schools in that area the parents the alums the faculty and staff of course that you know that it just becomes this place of inspiration that and that the climate action uh mantra will really spread and and then similarly if we have a whole bunch of schools starting to do this across the country that momentum that movement can be uh, something we see across the country so i will feel successful when we're really seeing that kind of movement being built and and people taking action and really as you were alluding to through a regenerative lens so as you said we don't have time to be just being less bad doing less toxic stuff you know less waste we need to be regenerative we need to be healing the planet making it healthier for humans for all the creatures we really need to take a leap in and how we think a paradigm shift toward this idea of healing and regeneration and that's another marker that i'm looking for is when people are really uh, speaking that way and seeing their actions through that lens of healing I love it. I love the idea that this could reach a tipping point at some time in the near future where you see schools just piling on, right? And, and the ones that don't are feeling left behind. Wouldn't that be yeah. fantastic? Sure. And piling on and then helping schools that that maybe aren't part of it for whatever reason, just reaching out. So it's that's, you know, I, I don't want any school to feel left behind. And there are schools for whom this may not be as doable, but they can latch on in some other way. And we actually have a school that we're talking to right now that said, well, we're already partnering with another school, but they can't they're not in a place to really do what we're doing. But can they listen in? I'm like, bring them on your team. I, I want this to be an, an absolutely contagious open movement um, of regeneration. The support you guys provide in terms of these uh, regular 
video conferences and workshops and lesson plans just see that evolving in a certain direction what's working well there and uh where, where your success is there the interaction i think is really cool between the the different generations as i described so on any given meeting we have you know 120 130 people a bunch of students a bunch of senior administrators uh faculty facilities folks and there we're you know we put them in breakout groups in their we put them in their school teams we put you know all the students in a in one breakout and the administrators in another we're, we're mixing people up and having them share what they're learning best practices and that kind of thing and their and their challenges and their questions how do we get students to do the recycling thing and follow the direction mm. on the on the bins and you know something as basic as that to to how do we convert to renewable energy and on our buildings um so these conversations are really you know to me that's a really fun part mm. and then getting them to to apply it in their school and then come back at a, at a follow-up workshop and share what they've applied in their own circumstance so we, we've got learning partners between schools that we're forming we have a Slack channel, so all the schools are on Slack together, sharing ideas and asking questions. Um, so a bunch of different ways that we're just trying to facilitate conversation. We hope it gets much bigger than us, actually. We hope that this just becomes something that schools just start talking to one another and, you know, that conferences start forming around it. It just becomes a real big theme in K-12 education. And then I guess the leaders that you're working with are, and the future leaders, they can then in turn sort of rally their school population to get involved with different projects at the at the micro level. Yeah, definitely. So that's what that is what they're doing. Actually, they're creating a plan that they're implementing in their own school community. And I had one um, administrator at a school out east, uh, let me know that she's actually going to the parent association and giving them a direction on a project she wants them to take and then going to a different stakeholder group and saying, okay, here's where I want you involved. So she's right away, including everybody in contributing to this school plan. And that's the whole point. It can't be that a really keen group of the green team makes this happen for a school. Everybody needs to adopt it and take it on. I love it, Michelle. This is fantastic. And I look forward to looping back around with you uh, many times over the coming months and years and, and documenting and tracking the, the successes you're going to have. I'm positive with, with this initiative and the Maitland Tower project and all of that. What's going on there? That's so cool. I'd love to talk to you again, and I'd love to bring some students uh, along with me to, to tell you how it's going. Let's do that. Yeah, let's plan on that. That's our next one, okay? Okay. Outdoor tips and tech. Six degrees on your left, 122 meters. There's many types of fishing hooks, sizes and shapes that Go along with fishing, right? Fishing hooks are a big part of it. I've been blind pretty much most of my life since age eight, and I've been fishing for all my life. So dealing with hooks is just something I do. It's, it's not a big issue. But when you're casting and you're reaching back with your fishing rod to that two o'clock position before you bring it forward, that's when the problems happen. People walk behind you. People get hooked. Or when you're in a boat, someone just put their fishing hook on the bottom of the boat. You step on it or you put your hand down and you get a hook in your hand. So there's a bunch of ways you can get a hook into yourself. The best way to get it out, if the barb is like passed into the skin, you want to push it around so the hook point pops out. Then cut the hook itself by the uh, line tie end of the hook, by the shank end with a pair of good wire cutters and then pull the hook right through if you pull the hook out 
with the barb under the skin, the barb can get caught on a nerve or a blood vessel and also can tear the tissue a little bit. So it's better to push it through. Now, if it's in an area where you're going to have trouble with that or the hook point's pointed the wrong way, cut that hook again, not flush with the skin, just so you can get the lure off you and uh, get yourself to the emergency room. You can avoid all this, of course, if you just pinch the barb down really well with a pair of needle nose pliers or just buy hooks that don't have barbs. It's so easy to get a hook out that has no barb. And it's so easy to get a hook out of a fish that has no barb. If you're not fishing a tournament or fishing for food and you're just going to let them go anyways, why not fish with barbless hooks? Hey everyone, you know, we've seen a lot of big hurricanes, the you know, biggest one ever hit in Canada, Fiona, and that big one down in Florida, Ian. The drought on the West Coast and some of the heat we've been experiencing over the last while. Let's all make a pledge to do something every day. Like I recycle, I compost every day, I try to reuse things. I've been doing a lot of uh, not throwing things away. You know, I'm getting pretty good sewing things. I've been sewing a lot of camping equipment this year and fixing it up. If we do little things and big things, try to make sure there's something in your life every day that's somehow reducing our carbon footprint on this planet. Don't ask for so many rides. Walk more. Fly less. And if we all do it, our planet will be a good place for us and for future generations. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit me at lawrencegunther.com to keep up to date on my blogs and videos. Subscribe to get the latest episodes of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther by visiting your favorite podcast provider. And please take some time to rank us and give us some comments. Send me your feedback, suggestions, and questions on email at feedback at ami.ca or on Twitter at AMI-audio. I want to thank Nazreen Abdel-Majid, the manager of AMI-audio, Zandy Frank. Hi, I'm Stephen Scott. Join me every day for Double Tap. It's a show where we occasionally talk about technology for blind and partially sighted people. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts.